I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade, 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we offer a diplomat's perspective on Israel, Palestine, Gaza, and U.S. foreign policy on those issues. Joining us is... Ambassador Patrick Theros. He's had a long career as a diplomat, including serving as the U.S. ambassador to Qatar from 1995 to 1998. He recently penned a piece in Responsible Statecraft that caught my eye, entitled, Who's the Superpower Around Here? that explores the Biden administration's response to the war in Gaza. We'll be discussing all of that and much more in the conversation to follow. I think that Patrick, as someone who has worked in the world of diplomacy, offers a powerful and important perspective. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Ambassador Patrick Theros. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with. He recently wrote a piece for Responsible Statecraft that caught my attention entitled, Who's the Superpower Around Here? And he's a retired U.S. ambassador and career foreign service officer. He's also, I believe, the strategic advisor to the Gulf International Forum. Patrick Theros, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Happy to be here. So, Patrick, the reason I wanted to have you on uh, was to talk about the situation with Gaza and then the broader Israel-Palestine conflict. And I think that you, as someone who has worked as an ambassador and has been 
involved in a lifelong career of diplomacy could offer a different perspective on all of this. So perhaps we could open by having you talk about your experiences as a diplomat and how that has, if at all, informed your thinking on Israel-Palestine and U.S. foreign policy on said issue. Huh, that's a big, I'm not going to take the whole 30 minutes doing that, of course. Uh, but I joined the Foreign Service in 1963. Uh, my first assignment was Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I went After that, I had a tour in Latin America, one Nicaragua, uh, took Arabic language in Beirut from 69 to 70, went to Jordan for Black September in 1970, uh, four years in Jordan, back to Washington, uh, uh, spent, uh, got married, came back. 1976, I went to Damascus as commercial attaché. Uh, 76 to 80. Uh, 80, I went to Abu Dhabi, to the UAE, as uh, the deputy chief of mission. Uh, it's an interesting time because about a month after I, two months after I got there, Iraq attacked Iran. And quite literally in the same weekend, my ambassador resigned for health reasons. And the Department of State, in its normal confusion, didn't come up with a replacement for me for a year and a half. So I uh, spent a year, uh, spent three years total in uh, the UAE, came back to Washington again, uh, uh, went into political military affairs for three years and a little bit, uh, and then back to Jordan in 1989, uh, sorry, 1987. I'd stayed in Jordan till 91. Uh, at the time of the Gulf War in Kuwait, uh, back to Washington. Uh, very interesting assignment. Uh, uh, Florida. I was assigned to Central Command as political advisor, at the time headquartered in Tampa. So that was two years of my domestic overseas assignment, so to speak. Two years after that, I became the deputy in the counterterrorism office of the Secretary, in the Office of the Secretary of State. And finally, as ambassador uh, in, uh, in Doha from 1995 to the end of 1998. Good career. A year and a half after I retired, I took over the U.S. Qatar Business Council, which is a bilateral trade association. Uh, and for 17 years, retired from that, went to work now as strategic advisor on a part-time basis to the Gulf International Forum. Uh, I have my own little, uh, uh, sorry, consulting company. Uh, we we uh, do a lot of work, a lot of marriage brokering between American companies and business in the Gulf. And I write and uh, otherwise try and be a gadfly and get people annoyed at me. I, I have to say that the Palestinian issue uh, was something that struck me from the ver almost from the very first day I arrived in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my language teacher in the embassy was a Palestinian lady from a distinguished family in uh, uh, in uh, Nablus. From and and everything other than the tour in Latin America, there probably was not an a month in which I didn't spend at least a few days involved in uh, Palestinian uh, Israeli issues. Of course, the two tours in Latin America, uh, two tours, sorry. In Jordan and the tour in Beirut, uh, were much more deeply involved uh, with the Palestinian issues. But uh, and again, for example, in uh, 1982, 
I was charge d'affaires in Abu Dhabi when uh, Israel invaded South Lebanon. And again, this took over my life for the next several weeks in dealing with the UAE, with the UAE government. So for me, the Palestinian issue has been a live, live issue for both my uh, life as a diplomat and a post-diplomat. One of the jobs I picked up, uh, Honorum Kalsum, I became for a few years an advisor uh, to the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem, where again, the political issues dominated any theological issues we may have had. It was primarily uh, how do we protect the property of the Orthodox Church and the larger uh, Greek Orthodox flock from the Israel, from Israeli settlers, who particularly in Jerusalem, were determined to essentially render that city, and I hate to say this in this term for these people, they were fanatics, uh, but they was their intent was to label, uh, to transform Jerusalem into a city free of Christians and Muslims. Right. Uh, it's it's a problem we're seeing now with the um, Armenian quarter as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Armenians, the Armenians for a long time, I have to say, uh, had uh, were sort of immune for a long time because they kept pointing out that they'd had their Holocaust before the Jews had had theirs. And it gave them a bit of a moral advantage. But now even they are uh, essentially being threatened all the time. In regards to what we often hear repeated about uh, this Israel-Palestine conflict, I often hear this framing that the onus for the lack of progress in solving this conflict is on the Palestinians. Most recently, I saw that when Hillary Clinton was asked about uh, Obama's comments. Obama said there's a little bit of blood on all our hands. Um, He was saying, you know, the U.S. and Israel, as well as Palestinians. Uh, But Hillary Clinton responded by talking about Arafat. And um, I feel as if there's a lot of ignoring the ways in which Israel, especially under the Likud party and the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu, has been obstinate. What are your opinions on that? Uh, there is only one time when I lay the entire blame on the Palestinians, and that's 1948. Uh, they had some fairly smart people who fooled themselves into believing that the Arab states uh, could save them. Uh, any objective outside observer would have known that uh, in 1948, the balance of power, this was a large number of Europeans, a lot of them with a great deal of military experience, being pushed out of their homes in Europe, having gone through one of the most horrific uh, events of the millennium, uh, for that matter, uh, desperate, well-armed, supported by major Western European powers and the United States, and anybody who thought that the Palestinians had even a ghost of a chance of defeating them was delusional, and yet their leadership allowed themselves to be deluded. So that 48 is on the Palestinians. Since then, uh, Obama's comment is very true, uh, but with specifics of the last time around when Bill Clinton uh, hosted uh, talks between the Israelis and Arafat, uh, Camp David, uh, I lay none of the blame for the failure of Camp David on Arafat. Arafat did not want the conference. He didn't want to go. He didn't like the terms of the conference, which were that we'll bring a Palestinian delegation, we'll bring an Israeli delegation, 
will lock them into Camp David, will take their phones away. We won't allow them to have any sort of uh, outside uh, contacts. Uh, Arafat didn't like it. Kicking and screaming, he was dragged into it. And the biggest, the, right off the bat, the biggest problem was that the Palestinian delegation was, uh, how can I say, institutionally weak. It was administratively weak. All the back office stuff, all the back office work in diplomacy and economics and geography and water rights and whatever you have, was being done by the Egyptian foreign ministry. The Palestinians did not have within their office anywhere near the capacity they needed to conduct negotiations on this. The Israelis came, you know, full-blown delegation, chock full of lawyers and uh, geographers and demographers and water experts and anything you might want, and the United States came that way. And it was clear that Arafat was being pressured. And I had occasion after, the, just after the, uh, the meeting broke up, when Clinton had blamed Arafat for, uh, for the failure, which I... I believe regard- he was told he wasn't going to be blamed for that either. I thought yeah, that was exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaving that, you know, leaving that aside, uh, when Clinton blamed Arafat, a few days later, I was with some friends at a restaurant in Washington and at uh, Palestinian friends, and one of the chief, one of the top two lieutenants to Arafat uh, came to the uh, to the dinner. And he described one story. It's, so he was describing an incident that I later verified from other sources as well. Uh, one of the many promises that were to Arafat that were disregarded was the uh, promise that... Uh, there would be no outside intervention. Now, you're sealed off from the outside. It also means nothing from the outside is coming in. And on one of the last, and they, as we all know, one of the principles of this 30-year peace process was you leave the hard things to last, which is turning logic on its uh, on its head. But uh, the the hard thing was uh, uh, fate of Jerusalem, and that was supposed to be the uh, the uh, the conversation of that last day. And early on, Bill Clinton pulls out a letter, hands it to Arafat, and says, this came in from the Pope. This is the Pope's uh, idea of how we can manage Jerusalem. Arafat looks at it, and the way Arafat, sorry, the guy I was talking to describes it, he picks up the letter between two fingers and looks at it, and he says, the only bishop who has any right to talk to me about Jerusalem is the Greek bishop, and there's nothing I can do about this if I don't have him on board. And at that point, things sort of went down uh, downhill. The guy we were talking to at dinner said Arafat just flubbed what he was trying to say. Arafat did not have the authority to discuss and decide on Jerusalem without consulting with several outside players. The outside players were the Christian churches, the outside players were the King of Jordan, the outside players were the Saudis, who all, he could not sign a document that didn't have the assent of all those parties. So, and he and he just said, the first thing that came to his mind was, I got to talk to the Greek bishop about this. And and that was it, and things went downhill. So I I sort of like Bill Clinton, 
what he did after that meeting was uh, shameful. He, had, uh, he broke a promise to Arafat. He broke several promises to Arafat. He loaded it before the meeting, and then he blamed Arafat for the failure. I also wanted to ask you about, it seems like, well, I'll start it with this. We just saw that Joe Biden has been saying there needs to be an independent Palestinian state, right. uh, you know, a two-state solution to this. And Netanyahu has responded with, there's not going to be a Palestinian state, which I, I feel like that's a slap in the face to the U.S. And, and the president, Joe Biden. This is not the first time Bibi has had sort of tensions with the U.S. president. Yeah. I think that H.W. Bush had issues with the Likud party before right. Bibi was a prime minister. Right. Um, Bill Clinton famously said, you know, who's the superpower here? Who the fuck does this guy think yeah, he yeah. is? Uh -huh. um, that was reported by Aaron David Miller. Mm -hmm. And also Obama and Netanyahu uh, didn't get along very well at all. Yeah. So what is the nature of U.S. policy on Israel-Palestine especially when the Likud party is in power? And why, despite those tensions, doesn't U.S. policy seem to change very much? Yeah, I ask myself that question frequently. I, and frankly, where we are now completely mystifies me. Uh, now, a good friend who knows the, pre uh, the president well tells me that the president has been a staunch supporter and admirer of the state of Israel since it, virtually since his childhood, and that he had been influenced by stories of the Holocaust, and that uh, uh, sort of at the dining room table, uh, people he grew up with, uh, he regards uh, the mission of Israel to provide a home for the Jewish people after their 2,000 years of, uh, of exile to be a, I don't know if it's a holy mission, but to be something that he honestly believes in. So when October 7th happened, I'm, I'm not surprised. It was, you know, it was horrific. I'm not surprised he uh, hung in there saying, I've, I've got your back for everything. But what mystifies me is as it drags on, first of all, Netanyahu is a declared enemy of the Democratic Party. He has, you know, <clears throat> he has humiliated <clears throat> at least a couple of American presidents, Biden being uh, the second or third one. Uh, if you remember the invitation by the Republicans to address uh, a joint meeting of the House, uh, Houses of Congress, in which he simply tore into the Democrats, uh, he has essentially may, uh, gone to war against the Democrats uh, it, politically. How this ends up with Biden against uh, supporting him as he does leaves me at a complete uh, Completely mystified. Now, I have another theory about Biden in particular, and then I'll get to the larger picture. Now, Biden is my age, and a little bit younger, but <clears throat> just about my age. He and, uh, you know, one of the problems with people my age is we're deeply influenced by what went before. And sometimes we have a problem breaking out of that mold. And so I think he may at one level, realize that he's made a horrible mistake. At another level, he simply finds it impossible to walk away from everything he's believed in for the last three or four decades, at least of his life. So that's part of it. 
the larger part is there is a a lot you know how do you say is our theories of kinetic energy it is very hard to turn around what america believes in and america has had a uh, a thorough education from the israeli point of view and it is reinforced by uh, the fact that uh, we do not see israel as a colonial enterprise for example uh, i know so many americans who even if they're irreligious believe uh, essentially accept genesis 15:18 and i'm gonna, and god promised this land to abraham the amount of false of false or er, uh, erroneous information circulating in the american body politic uh, is enormous. Uh, here, I really say the shame on the Arabs. They've not. The Arabs have got this terrible habit. It's I don't have to explain anything to you. Either you're on my side or you're not. And that really reflects the way most Arabs uh, ad address the United States. It is sort of our the our justice is so obvious that if you don't understand it, it means you. You're against it, and it's very. It, it means you're a lost cause, almost. Yeah, yeah. How they view it. Yeah, yeah, and, and no, it's beyond lost cause. It means you're on the other guy's side, and there's no point. There's no point to my even trying to uh, educate you. And I've spent a good part of a career going horse talking to Arabs, saying, "You've never made your case properly. You and what you've you've allowed the fringe elements of the Arab world to make your case, rather than the perfectly good case that you have." So there's a lot of that locked in. Now, uh, the strength of the evangelical movement, which literally adapts, uh, adopts scripture word for word, uh, plays a role. I actually think that the Jewish part of the lobby, the structure has been co-opted by Likud, or they co-opted Likud, I don't know. But like most ethnic, uh, most ethnic diaspora politicians or people, they tend to be more Catholic than the Pope. I'm Greek by origin. I know when in, in my community, when I talk to Greeks about Cyprus, about issues in the Aegean, I find the community far more, how can I say, far more forward-leaning and warlike than I find Greeks in Greece. And I think this reflects a large part of the Jewish community. Now, the APAC and the others are, are, in my view, are in danger of being co-opted by Christian evangelicals because they're losing the youth of the Jewish community. And so, I, and again, this is one of the problems with somebody my age. If it wasn't for my kids shouting at me, I wouldn't know what people were talking about. But it is so deeply, the facts as we see them are so deeply embedded in the body politic of the, uh, of the United States in the minds, in the minds of Americans, that is extremely difficult to make a rational argument that you know there is another side. I'm not saying the other side is completely right, but there is another side. I mean, and and then you run into danger of being accused of anti-Semitism if you say there's another side. Terminology gets wrapped around. I I'm old enough to remember when Zionists were using the term from the river to the sea. Well, it's, I think it's in the Likud Charter from 1977. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know, but that's possible. But I mean, uh, and so 
one sits here. One of the disadvantages of American diplomats is we actually spend a lot of time talking to other people, to people outside the United States. We have been brought up to uh, to say that you've got to listen to the other guy. You have to understand where he's coming from, even if you don't sit. You have to empathize, even if you don't sympathize. That's the mark of a uh, of a good diplomat. You have to understand what his background is, which makes American diplomats probably the only people who really understand on a, in a broad and deep sense what's going on in the region and the people least qualified to convince other Americans. I have enough problems with a couple of my cousins trying to convince them. And they like me, and they, but they just think that I'm often some. Uh, I, I'm questioning their basic beliefs. So this, do you I think, think that? Do, do you ahead. think that the issue is that you know the American public has a strong, maybe pro-Israel bias, and that you know even if you have a president that has issues with, uh, say Netanyahu, they're maybe worried about losing votes if they make a decision that is seen as anti-Israel or. I think so. And I won't even say that the American public is necessarily pro-Israeli in a let's go fight for them, but more is, you know, they have accepted a truth and this truth colors how they see the entire, uh, how they see the subject, how they see the development, how they see the issues. It is really easy to forget that October 7th was not the beginning of the Arab, of the Israeli-Palestinian war. I also wanted to ask you, um, you know, with this question of the lobby and how can we avoid the, the slur of anti-Semitism when talking about it? I call it the Israel lobby. Okay. I, I, and I stay away from the Jewish lobby because I know a lot of people who are Jewish who uh, would be offended if I accuse them of being part of the Jewish lobby. But I think the, the, the Israel lobby, I mean, uh, again, going back to Greek, there is a Greek lobby. Uh, we're not as effective as, uh, as, as APAC, but it does exist. But within the Greek community in the United States, our problem is that you, there's no distinction between Greek and Greek, whether you're talking about the country uh, and so forth. But still, the lobby is a well-organized, and it's turned into a business, let's be honest. It, uh, there are people at the top live quite well. They, these are lot, big lobbying organizations that are not run by volunteers. They're run by professionals. Uh, and... Right now, they have a they have an interest in continuing to persuade people that their side is right, and they they and they're good at it, and and it's very very hard to convince. I was talking to a Navy admiral years and years ago, in which he was talking about uh, the again Genesis fifteen eighteen, the promise of the land, and I said out of curiosity, do you know what the word Israel? Me, what, where did you read this? I read it in the Bible, he said. I said, what language did you read it in the Bible? He said, I read it in English. I said, okay, you see the word Israel. What do you, what do you, I, you know, I speak really good, I, I, really good Greek. My Arab Bible was written originally in Greek. Uh, my Arabic is good. I have a passing ability uh, to, uh, to link the Arabic language and ancient Hebrew, which are really quite closely related and so forth. I said, do you know what the word Israel means? And he says, uh, the Jews. I said, no, the word Israel means the people of God. And Osra in Hebrew and in Arabic is the family in modern uh, Hebrew and modern Arabic. But it comes out of a, a root, which means, uh, you know, the people, the clan that belongs to 
to God. And the Al is Allah is, uh, you know, the, the Semitic root word for God. So, and it is a perfectly reasonable explanation to say that you as a Christian are Israel. And I thought the guy was going to have a heart attack. He literally sat down in a chair, and I had just struck at a basic element of his, of what he had integrated as a belief. And being a very religious man, this was a very important issue to him. Because if I got this one wrong, what else have I got wrong? Look, my view is that it's neither the Palestinian fault nor the uh, Israeli fault. Sorry, is you had a large number of people, half of whom were slaughtered in Europe, who were pushed out of Europe. Europe really didn't want them at the end of World War II. Uh, they felt a lot of guilt. The Brits had been playing politics for some years, and they thought that they could use a small Jewish uh, immigration to consolidate control over Palestine uh, in that area. Instead, it got out of hand. The Brits were no longer able to compare it. So they pushed a bunch of people into a land where they had some psychological uh, connections, uh, uh, into a land that was already populated by half the people there are probably descended from the Jews that converted to first to Christianity and then to Islam through the years. And these people were pushed together because Europe and the West wanted to get rid of a problem. And it's not, they didn't, the, the Israelis didn't start it and the Palestinians didn't start it. The British and the French started it. The, uh, the Ottomans a little bit, but basically the British and the French started it. And then during the Cold War, the Russians and us uh, both decided this is a nifty argument to go uh, proxy fight our own fights with. So, In other words, the Israelis and the Palestinians were caught in the middle. They were, yeah, they were the victims. They were just pushed together. It was sort of uh, like, you know, what's nuclear weapons? You push two sides of uranium together and you reach critical mass. It's what happened to them. Now, if we can, if you can stay a little bit longer, um, in your piece, who's the superpower around here? Uh, we mentioned the lobby earlier, but I, I get the feeling in this article that you're arguing, you know, the lobby is not an excuse for the Biden administration's policies. You know, right. I mm -hmm. think what is often said is, well, it's not politically feasible to right. issue a demand and crack down on Netanyahu. And in this article, you're saying, no, that's yeah. not true. A decisive American president can do anything he wants, whether or not a powerful lobby opposes him. So Absolutely. can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. Uh, 1956, a guy named uh, Dwight Eisenhower is president. Uh, the Israelis, the French, and the British launch a completely uh, unprovoked attack on Egypt. Uh, it doesn't go well. The Israeli part goes well because they're just coming across the desert. British and the French uh, don't do so well in Suez. Eisenhower, who was sympathetic to their cause, by the way, and was pushing the Egyptians not to nationalize the canal, and basically was on their side, I'd only asked one favor of them is don't do anything before you tell me. And they lied to him and uh, attacked Egypt without, uh, after telling Eisenhower that they wouldn't. Eisenhower lost it. Uh, there was this moment there when uh, Khrushchev uh, started brandishing nuclear weapons at the British and the French. And Eisenhower's response to the British and the French was, you made your bed, you, you sorted it out. So they withdrew the Israelis decided to stick to their positions. 
And Eisenhower was telling him, you've got to pull out, you've got to pull out, you've got to pull out, we've got to get the canal open, all the reasons. And had also told the Israeli ambassador, you cannot, don't make this a domestic political issue. It's October 1956, we've got elections next month. Late one evening, I, the head of the Republican Party in New York calls calls him and starts begging him to stop leaning on the Israelis because it will affect his political chances. Uh, it'll affect the, the party in New York. And Eisenhower responded angrily. I won't use the language I was told he used. Uh, hung up on him, said, I want to see the Israeli ambassador now. Israeli ambassador showed up late at the White House, at the Oval Office, and was told in no uncertain terms that by the next morning, he, Eisenhower, was going to get an agreement that the Israelis would begin pulling out of Sinai. People, there was a brief furor, but this is, Eisenhower had an advantage. I like Ike, which was true. Everybody liked Ike, but it was, it didn't affect Eisenhower's reelection or anything else very much at all. Right. Ronald Reagan said to uh, Menachem Begin, yeah. you know, there needs to be a ceasefire in Beirut. People are seeing yeah. all these images of yeah. dead babies. Yeah. And and Begin, I think, initially didn't want to do it. He calls him back 20 minutes later uh, and says, you know, OK, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. I mean, it was like you know, read my lips sort of argument from Reagan. Then George H.W. Bush and the uh, and the question, you know, it's 10 billion dollars. Well, 10 billion dollars at that time was a lot of money. And. Uh, that government, uh, they caved. So I put this on two levels. On a professional level, I believe that a decisive American president can get away with virtually everything. If he, the president stands up and says, I, the president of the United States, just told you you're out of there tomorrow, stop fighting or whatever it is, and delivers it in a decisive tone, uh, even people who don't like him are going to say, yeah, that's that's my president. And the other, which is sort of on a moral level, you know, we elected you to, to make hard decisions. We didn't elect you so you could spend your life getting reelected. That is not the reason you are president of the United States. You know, otherwise, president of the United States will figure, you know what, I'm going to surrender before nuclear blackmail because I don't want to die in a nuclear holocaust. That's not what we paid you for. Right. <laughs> the other the other tragedy of this, it's interesting you mentioned H.W. Bush's showdown with, um, you know, the then Israeli prime minister, Yitzhak Shamir, who was yeah, also right. uh, the Likud party leader. You know, yeah. I mean, Shamir didn't want to stop the settlement construction. Right. And, you know, that aid was being withheld if he didn't stop it. And right. eventually Shamir had to cave. And I think that did lead to a lot of changes. I mean, eventually yeah. we get Rabin in and there's more hope for a peace process. Right. But I feel like I have a lot of guests that have said that was really the last time they can remember where, you know, a U.S. president stood up that way to an Israeli prime minister. And what's interesting to me is I think that sometimes Israel needs the U.S. to do that for its own good or its, its own, own long-term interests. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, th Yeah, I think right now, right now, I think the Netanyahu is destroying Israel's reputation. Uh, he to is, save his own hide. Yeah. Save his own hide. He, he doesn't want to go to jail. Well, I mean, the Israeli public has figured that out. Their problem is that October 7th has loomed so large in their minds that it's difficult to get the public to, when you when you have that sort it's near hysteria in Egypt, in Egypt and Israel, when you have that level of emotion 
covering an issue, it's very hard to get people to slow down, take a, you know, take a rest, have a smoke, and say what's in our interest. And Netanyahu is surrounded by a narrow band of politicians who are telling him, if you don't keep this up, we're going to dump you. And right now, I just was listening to the news that uh, there was a group of Israeli families who have, you know, families of hostages who just took over a committee room and overran a committee, the finance committee meeting in the Knesset. There, there are some very angry people. And they have come up with their conclusion, which is Netanyahu not only is not looking to rescue hostages, because that would get in the way of keeping the war going, but probably would even like, and God, uh, God help him, probably wouldn't mind most of the hostages getting killed because it would reinforce his position. So, And I think the families of the hostages in Israel have figured that out. Netanyahu is you know, pretty close to one of the worst players personally. I mean, he has done his, his country more harm than any leader that they've had for a long time. So in that regard, what do you see as being the way forward then? I mean, how could U.S. policy on this change? It goes back to the president. I don't see in, I mean, US, I'm not talking about U.S. policy, which is like, you know, the the aircraft carrier giving us helm order, and it takes it another two miles before it can actually turn or stop. I'm talking about this has got to stop soon because no one's winning. The Israelis are not winning their war. Hamas isn't winning their war. There's a really good chance that it is that it will spread. Uh, I personally believe that Netanyahu desperately wants to attack Lebanon because that's one good way of keeping the war going. You know, you keep this up. I can keep the war going till I get my retirement papers and go live in Bermuda or something, or some other place that Brazil doesn't have an extradition treaty with Israel. So the more delayed we are in stopping the war, and I say we in stopping the war, because frankly, the way the cards have been dealt right now, there's only one way to stop the war absent internal revolt in Israel by the Israelis against Netanyahu. Could I add something yeah, to uh, sure. what you were saying? Mm -hmm, I mean, it sure. does seem like the, the the pattern that we've seen in the past is that Israeli wars don't end without uh, the interference of another country. Like, uh, I believe in the case of the Israeli-Lebanon war, uh, it was the U.S. and France kind of intervened right. on that one. Right. So it seems mm -hmm. like these wars only end when an outside party says enough is enough. Right. Frequently, I'll, I'll tell you, the Israelis were not doing well in Lebanon. And they, <laughs> and they needed somebody to come tell them to stop. Stopping the second Israeli war, the third, I forget which way there's been so many, uh, but stopping the 2006 war, uh, it was the U.S. that was egging them on. I mean, uh, Condoleezza Rice's comment about this is the uh, uh, birth pangs of a new Middle East, which is insane. But uh, the Israelis had gotten themselves in deep. The war was not going the way they wanted. And they were almost begging the U.S. to force them to stop the war because politically they couldn't stop it themselves. They didn't want to, they didn't want to admit they'd been defeated. So they had to have... This is one of the problems when you soldier population on a myth that you are all powerful. You are more, they are more powerful than their neighbors, but they are not powerful enough to achieve decisive victory in these places. 
So now you've got to go tell your people that, you know what, we can't do it. So the only way you get away and keep your retirement is the Americans made me stop. So, so in other words, that's the way that the leadership can save face. They can say, well, we would have achieved our lofty goals had it not been for the U.S. saying we had to stop. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, but right now, the problem is that the core of Netanyahu's government has another lofty goal that they know is toast if they stop, which is essentially the depopulation of Gaza and as much of the West Bank as possible. And that is a goal that they believe in with the certainty of their faith. And But they are also smart enough to know that if they get stopped here, October 7th and the subsequent attack has set the wheels rolling towards an independent Palestinian state. And that probably terrifies them more uh, than their domestic politics right now. I wanted to ask you as well, since you've worked as a diplomat, when it comes to an issue like this, especially after after October 7th, I think the emotions are very high. Mm -hmm. I can understand, you know, when I talk to uh, my American Jewish friends, a lot of whom have relatives in Israel yeah. and some relatives that have had their families held hostage, you know, family mm -hmm. members held hostage. I get where they're coming from. Emotions right. are high for them. On the other hand, I think that sometimes people forget Emotions are very high for Palestinians, Absolutely. because whether or not you agree with uh, South Africa's case with the ICJ about genocide, to a Palestinian, this does ring bells because yeah, they remember exactly, the Nakba. Yeah. Uh -huh. But I feel like it's very hard to bring the temperature down uh, and have people talk to each other. So what is the best way to get around these very highly emotionally charged ways of thinking about things. How do you sort of bring people to the table? Uh, I get back and sound like a broken record. President <laughs> of the United States. Right it, now... It, it always goes back to the White House. <laughs> it always goes back to the White House. Right now, American foreign policy is being run by four guys. Blinken, the president, McGurk, and Sullivan. And uh, I mean, from what I hear from friends is the rest of the State Department, the Defense Department have been told... You know, you guys work on the small stuff. We're working on this, and we're working on this almost the exclusion of any other in input coming in because the president has got four guys around him who sort of believe in what he's doing or who haven't figured out how not to believe what he's doing. Is uh, right. So it, it goes back to the president. You know, you're president of the United States. Last time I looked, uh, there is not a country in the world that has anywhere near the power that we have. You want to stop the Houthis shooting at uh, ships in the Red Sea? The Houthis have said, stop the fighting in Gaza, and we're, we'll go home. Uh, the Lebanese, uh, Hezbollah said, stop the fighting in Gaza, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll pull back the border. We'll stop shooting. Everybody has told them. And somebody says, well, they're lying. I said, well, how do you know they're lying until you try it? In the meantime, you're, you're getting... Israeli kids killed, Israeli soldiers killed, because they have bit off something that they are incapable of doing. Why is the Israeli Air Force bombing everything in sight? Because you've had an army in Israel that has spent the last 40 or 50 years acting as an occupation policeman. They've gotten sloppy, they've been, they're not well trained, there may be a few elite units, and what you have on the other side is 
10, 20,000 very hard men who've been living a miserable life and who are fighting on their own terrain. And you've made that terrain even more difficult to uh, deal with because you've knocked down all the buildings. Go read uh, what happened uh, to an America, I forget which one it was, but an uh, American division at Casino that pushed into, uh, into the town of Casino after the Air Force had leveled it. Tanks got stuck. They couldn't move. Infantry had to get out of the, uh, of the tanks and the half-tracks, and the Germans just, Germans lost, but they chewed them up. Very heavy casualties. And right now, I'm trying to read between the lines of the news reports of what I'm hearing is the Israelis are mostly staying in their tanks and their, their APCs. They are not out pushing into areas that are controlled by Hamas where the tanks can't go because they have not, they are at a disadvantage. It's not their home turf. They haven't, they haven't trained for this. They haven't been prepared for this. They've been told for the last 40 years that Palestinians run away and they won't fight you. And I would not like to be an Israeli platoon leader go, told to go take that building over there. You mentioned Brett McGurk. Real briefly here, there's been a lot of reporting on McGurk lately, especially from the Huffington Post, mm -hmm. saying that he's pushing the worst policies when it comes to Gaza. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you read anything about that? A little bit. I actually hadn't paid much attention to him on Gaza, but I'd, on Iraq and Afghanistan, this guy, you know, Brett McGurk hasn't seen a war he didn't love. Uh, and it's one of the great things about people who've never seen a war. I, I think that's the biggest problem with uh, some some of uh, U.S. foreign policy yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Before we get going, I wanted to ask, uh, since you work with, you know, the Gulf states and, and you do work on those issues, what do you make of the Gulf states' reaction so far and response to uh, this war? The Gulf states, you know, are always out there uh, trying to accomplish their interests. Uh, and this war has turned their interests upside down. Uh Abu Dhabi, the UAE in particular, and Bahrain both have a vested interest in having good relationships with uh, Israel and that have nothing to do with Iran and have more to do with their own regional politics with Saudi Arabia and so forth. Really, they don't want, they want the uh, tie to remain. And what's happening now in terms of their own public opinion uh, is making it very difficult for them to keep uh, keep the lid on, but there seems to be one unified message coming out of the uh, of the GCC states. Don't come to us to pay for the rebuilding unless we are rebuilding for a Palestinian state. Uh, you know, and I keep reading stuff coming out of Israeli think tanks and some of our think tanks here. Well, we've got to get the Saudis in to do this. They have to police the area. Uh, uh, we can get them to rebuild these things. No, my friend, you can't. I, I still talk a lot in the Gulf. There is absolutely no way that I see that the Gulf states will pick up the tab again unless it is associated with the rebuilding of a Palestinian state. And tomorrow, and the Europeans aren't going to pick up the tab. They, they might for uh, the humanitarian part of it. But in terms of anything approaching rebuilding, it's going to show up where it should have. And if, mind you, if we hadn't been bailed out in the past by everybody, Israel is the occupying power and under terms of the various international agreements and conventions that they have signed, they are responsible for the welfare and maintenance of the population of 
the occupied territories. This is on them. And for the first time, I think this is going to, hasn't come home to the Israelis yet, because I think they're still deluding themselves that they will be able to talk the Gulf states into paying for it. I was going to say, I, I think it's even been true with Egypt, because there yeah. was a lot of talk floated about, oh, well, maybe maybe we can push the Gazans into the Sinai. Yeah. And Egypt came out pretty strongly and said, no, that ain't happening. No way. That is not happening. So it seems yeah. like there are a lot of different parties putting their foot down. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's going to affect uh, Israel and how it how it ends up dealing with this? The answer is yes. Yes, but it, it's got to have a lag. It's going to, it's, I think uh, a lot of Israelis and some Americans in Washington are still clinging to the idea that they'll get the Gulf to pay for it. Uh, I think even the Brett McGurks know that there's not going to be a Gazan uh, uh, exodus into Sinai. That one, I think, uh, I got some pictures the Sphinx, the Egyptians put up on Sinai, and that's just as dense as anything the Israelis had on their side. So there is no way that the Palestinians, even if you push them up against the fence, there's no way they can get through it to the other side. And the Egyptians have deployed more military units to uh, Sinai. Uh, Sisi's economy is in shambles, and he doesn't need to be tarred with, you help the Israelis expel Palestinians. And, you know, it is still, a, you know, there was this, how can I say, refrain this uh, thought going around the world is that the other Arabs have given up on the Palestinians and they don't care anymore. Uh, the leadership of many Arab countries were trying to figure out a way to cut their own deals without going to the Palestinians. Problem is, their people were not, had not given up on the Palestinians. Right. What's This is often referred to as like the Arab street versus right. the, the leadership. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. And when things are calm, the Arab street isn't aroused, and the leadership can do what they want. And, you know, I don't know how the Israelis can extricate themselves from this without a Palestinian state being on the menu. There were just two more things. I know I've already kept you over time, and I apologize mm -hmm. for that. But I wanted to talk a bit about Iran, because... One thing that I'm very much tired of hearing is that if Iran would just go away tomorrow or disappear into the mist, you know, everything would just immediately calm down. I mean, I also take issue with this idea that Hezbollah is just a, a puppet of Iran. I think there's Iranian backing certain yeah. groups, but I I think that it's not as simple as saying, oh, this group is just a puppet of Iran. Oh, I, um, absolutely. And I also think that if Iran disappeared tomorrow there would still be the Israel-Palestine conflict. And right. I actually think this is an excuse to not solve the issue. To, to just blame everything in Iran is a way to avoid the issue of doing hard diplomacy that mm -hmm. gets the actual problem solved. I agree. I, I begin with the, your last premise, which is since the peace treaty, Israel, and particularly Likud in the far right of uh, the right of the Israeli body politic, need a powerful threat to keep the country together, to keep their them in, uh, you know, sort of viable in policy. Uh, Ariel Sharon wrote a, uh, or gave an interview to Haaretz years and years ago, 
uh, when he was before he got sick. And I don't remember the wording exactly, but what he basically said is that Israel is a state but not a nation. It hasn't become a nation yet. Uh, it is people who have come from all parts of the world speaking different languages, interpreting religion different ways or not being religious at all, uh, different motivations for coming to Israel, many of them having maintained their citizenship in the country they left as an insurance policy. And so what Ariel Sharon told the interviewer was that Israel needs th another generation of war before it can become a nation. Then the extrapolation from that is you need an enemy, and you need an enemy that can be built up as super powerful. Once Egypt signed a peace treaty, all of a sudden, you know, that was taken out from under them. Then it became Iraq. Iraq became the enemy that was super powerful that had to be destroyed, that goes threatening us. We destroyed Iraq. Now you need Iran. You need somebody who doesn't like us, who is big and powerful, to threaten us so that we can keep our own politics together. Uh, the Iranians, uh, they've just capitalized on a sentiment because the Iranians, I think, when the revolution first started, the Iranians had this uh, idea that they would become the dominant power in the Middle East, and they needed a uh, uh, and they needed a slogan. So the slogan was "Death to Israel, Death to uh, America." The "Death to America" was for domestic purposes. Uh, there is a long history I will bore you with now of why there are a very large number of Iranians who resent us or dislike us as a country, not as a people. But the "Death to Israel" was a handy slogan, and particularly useful because. The Shah, the guy who was over the, that they overthrew, uh, had been on relatively good terms with Israel, so it was easy to stir things up. If the Shah wanted this and the Shah was hated, it must have been a bad thing. And it has gotten the Iranians a lot of mileage in the Arab world, which you wouldn't expect because of the Shia-Sunni uh, divide. Uh, since then, the Iranians have partly, I think, out of sentiment, Hezbollah is, uh, is largely Shia, uh, the Houthis aren't Shia, by the way. Anybody tells you the Houthis are Shia? I mentioned that to a bunch of people in the Gulf who are pretty a lot know a lot more about religion than than I do, and their comment was the, the Houthis are Zaydis. Uh, well, Zaydi is just sort of a weird uh, a weird Sunni has gone off the track, rather than uh, the Shia. Certainly not Shia in their sense, and certainly not the kind of Shia that is acceptable in uh, in Iran. All these are people who are revolutionary movements within their own countries. Hezbollah represents the plurality, if not the majority, of the people of Lebanon who got the short end of the stick for since the French came and now are exerting the influence that reflects their numbers as well as, as power. And the Iranians saw both a kindred people in a sense because they're Shia, uh, and they're the same kind of Shia as the as the Iranians, and secondly, an excellent tool to goad our enemies, because America's declared war on Iran in 1979. Back to the matter is, we have fed into the Israeli narrative that Iran is a the world's biggest threat after China or before China. I don't know. You talk to an American about the history of American-Iranian relations, and they begin with the taking of the embassy hostage in 1979. 
You talk to an Iranian about the history of American-Iranian relations. They may they mention 1953. 53, exactly. And, and never the twain shall meet, I fear. I mean, it, uh, I really don't know how we're going to how we're going to unload the American hostility towards Iran. And the Ayatollahs, who are not a likable bunch of guys, have been riding to staying in power because they can always crank up uh, what America, the evil things that America has done to Iran. Well, especially after, I mean, we had the JCPOA under Obama, and then it just gets ripped up by Trump. I mean, it's... That was historic, in my view, the JCPOA, but it got ripped up. So, I mean, Iran can always say, well, why can we trust the Americans? Yeah, and the other thing in Biden, they see Biden as having double-crossed him because he said, we're going to fix it. And then he spent the next two years, uh, and I don't know who derailed it inside of the White House, but clearly I think Biden began with good intentions of the JCPOA and what passes for an inner circle in Washington derailed it. With regards to that, um, it, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this because I'm I'm not like a diplomat or anything. But to me, I could see how making a really good faith effort to try to slowly get a peace process in in the Israel Palestine conflict going uh, could actually, if you wanted to undermine uh, Iranian regional influence, yeah. that would be one good way to do it as a diplomatic tool. Am I off base there? No, not at all. Uh, the only place I would disagree with, you can't solely restart the peace process. What do you, well, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, the peace process has to begin with some dramatic forward movement. I mean, my preference would be for the United States to say, we recognize the Palestinian Authority as the government of an independent country. Even though the Palestinian Authority has made up a bunch of clods and idiots, it's still is the internationally recognized and just say you're a government now you're under occupation now just like you know other countries have been under occupation but we recognize uh we recognize you and then you start the peace process there's no other way of starting it if you don't begin with the the end game for the americans is up front which is do, you th- the, do you think uh, with regards to the other side of that, how does the U.S. have to maybe push Israel along with regards to the two-state process? Or do, do we, think, should we condition aid? Or I think, for one, I am personally of the opinion is that the shock of an American president doing two things, telling him publicly stop or else without even spelling out the or else, and recognizing the PA as the government, of, you know, recognizing the state of Palestine, I think the shock through the uh, Israeli body politic would be sufficient to get some really serious work going. Now, there are other things. Eisenhower didn't threaten him cutting off aid. Eisenhower threatened to take him off swift. And that, and there are a lot, I'm, and Israel is still a fragile country in many ways. Uh, Immediately after the UAE signed uh, normalized relationships with Israel, several medium to large Israeli uh, tech companies moved to Dubai. Because uh, Israel is not, <clears throat> Israel happens to be a country full of some very smart and well educated people, but its government is not a government that you would enjoy dealing with in terms of paperwork, red tape, 
and stuff like that. So if I'm a tech guru of some sort, if I've ever got this startup and it's going fine, and I've just run into the 15th guy from the ta- uh, Israel tax office, and Dubai tells me, you know, we got no taxes at all. And not only that, but we haven't signed any extradition treaties with anybody, and we're running Dubai like Switzerland used to run its banks. Well, you know, the temptation to pick up and move to Dubai is pretty good. Some people have done it already. I mean, I predict, frankly, that in a few years' time, uh, we're going to be worried about a very powerful United Arab Emirates throwing its weight around in that area. We already are a bit. And I think we will, I mean, uh, the Mohammed bin, uh, bin Zayed is one very, very smart cookie with a vision of where he wants to take his country. In closing, I think people understand how bad this current crisis is for Palestinians, specifically Gazans, but we also are seeing spikes in settler violence right. in the West Bank, and it's really horrific. And my heart goes out to the Palestinians yeah. right now. I think this is also bad for Israel. The question I have for you is, how could this be damaging to the U.S. as well? Um, we are steadily becoming more isolated. The power of the United States vis-a-vis its enemies has always been its allies. Anybody who thinks that we are the most powerful country in the world because of these numbers over here really needs to rethink what he's saying. We are the most powerful country in the world because there are a lot of countries that want to be our ally. And the more we hack away at that, we're losing all over the third world. Third world sees Israel as a colonial enterprise, and they don't understand the way that we are letting the Israelis kill people. It, I mean, I think just in the States, all my Arab friends I, you know, in Dearborn, uh, unless he does something dramatic, he's not going to get a single vote out of Dearborn and Detroit in the elections in November. And I think that's going to be enough to toss Michigan back into, the, into Trump's column. Uh, I just uh, and I think you're going to see this in Minnesota. You're going to see it in Wisconsin. You're going to see it in a number of other swing states where there is an Arab and Muslim population that now has taken this personally in the United States. I and was going to say even even beyond the Arab vote, I think I think there's a lot of younger people that are not oh, very enthusiastic absolutely. about voting for Biden either, and that yeah. could play a role. That could play a big role, I think. The other thing I was going to say about Iran, I forgot to say this, is. There were two normalization processes in in train on October 7th, and I, I really think this is important to uh, stick in there. One was the normalization between the Gulf states and Israel, and the other was the normalization between the Gulf states and Iran. Iran has got some rather serious domestic problems. So no matter what happens to Israel, it was in Iran's interest, and the Iranians are smart, and they got good diplomats, they were trying to fix things with the Gulf states as well. I think you will see the Iranian Gulf state clash or conflict or challenge becoming much less important, and there will be more cordial relations between the Gulf states and Iran than we've seen in a long time. I was going to say, we've time. already seen that a bit with China mediating talks yeah. between Iran and Saudi yeah. Arabia. And I think Iran and Saudi Arabia are almost talking daily now since there are, this yeah, crisis the UA, began. Yeah, they got embassies open. Uh, the only Gulf state that really doesn't want to fix things with Iran is Bahrain. And that has to do with its domestic uh, demography. 
aside from that, every other, every one of the other Gulf states wants to have, not that they love the Iranians, but they want to have a decent working relationship with them. And they don't want to have to worry about uh, the Iranians subverting them. Well, I've all, I kept you about an hour here. I did not expect to do that, but I was I, I was so engrossed in the conversation. Yeah. I want to thank yeah. you again, Patrick Harris. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? And what's the one thing you want them to get out of this conversation? Other than the obvious, which is the president needs to do something. Uh, well, then we uh, conducted a survey. I belong to this organization called the American Academy of Diplomacy. We advise uh, the Department of State. We're mostly retired old fogies like me. Uh, we conducted a survey of American attitude towards foreign policy, and the lack of knowledge would really scare you. I had a vision in my mind of how little Americans knew about what is going on in foreign affairs. Uh, I was surprised at the findings of this. I don't know how to do this, but if if you really want to know if you really want to have an opinion on if you want to have an opinion on something, don't worry about it. If you want to have an opinion, if that opinion will affect how you will vote, how you will act otherwise, you've got to get smart about the other country and you've got to get smart about how the other country sees itself. You have to be it, able to see through other people's are, eyes, even eyes, if right. you don't necessarily agree yeah, with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to be able. So tell yourself next time you're talking with somebody, try and figure out what the other guy, what brought the other guy to do this or to do whatever he's doing. And uh, it, it's it's hard. And if you don't know anything about a subject, my preference is you don't do anything about that subject. Don't get involved. Don't uh, don't get swept away thinking that, well, this just happened, this is horrible. Uh, no matter what side you're on, if you're going to vote, if you're going to allow what's happening in Gaza today to affect how you vote or how you otherwise act in some business and stuff like that, either get smart or don't vote on it. Don't make it part of your calculation. And it's a horrible thing to say because I think most of the people won't make it part of their calculation. But it is really terribly important that Americans try to learn more about what's going on in the outside world and try to it, don't just it is not what you read in a blog or uh, something like that. It really requires somebody to uh, spend a little amount of time talking to people who know something about it or talking or reading or communicating or just try traveling. You know how few Americans actually travel outside the continent, even, you know, quick tour. I've always told Arabs, you want to convert Arabs to your, Americans to your side, invite them to come. And their own home turf, they're really hospitable. Yeah. And and how can my listeners keep up with your work? Or, or do you have a social media presence or anything like that? I don't have a social media presence. What I will do <clears throat> is I write articles um, every two weeks for a little newspaper in New York, it's a Greek-American newspaper. Their English language version is actually a nice little newspaper called the National Herald. Their subscription isn't too bad. So I've got an article with them. They have an online platform as well. And I write an article every couple of weeks with them. And uh, I would be happy to start sending you my articles as they're printed. 
I, I don't. Great. Yeah, I I don't think I can do a blog. I just don't have the time for it. And the other problem is they invented the internet fifty years too late for me. <laughs> well, hey, thank you again, Patrick Theros. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Thanks a lot. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ambassador Patrick Theros. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show going. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson. But otherwise, this show is listener-funded and independently run. So, I really do need your help to keep the program afloat. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. If you want to kick me some cash, it would be greatly appreciated. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.